Today on the Movement of Color podcast, Byron and I go watching documentaries. First up, 1994 was about that tumultuous year in Mexico and the Mexican elections. Following that, we watch Boss, the black experience in business. My name is Brandon Payton Curiel. And before we move on, I just would like to remind everybody that you can follow us on Twitter at movement underscore color. And hey, be a supporter at Patreon at patreon.com movement of color. Now, enjoy the rest of the show. Byron, do you remember 1994? I wasn't born yet for another two years. <laughs> Damn, really? Yeah, 96, bro. Yeah, you know what? I was born in 84, so I was 10 years old. So I remember grunge and flannel and the Mexican elections. Yes. Uh, my, my, my mom was actually visiting Mexico for a few months with my baby brother, with my, with my baby older brother at the time, yeah. That's almost like Back to the Future stuff. But I will go beyond that right now, and let's talk about the documentary – 1994, which basically talks about um, the turmoil of the Mexican elections back in 1994. Yes, and the, the lead-up and some of the aftermath of it. Exactly. Um, I know we've kind of discussed a little bit about this in previous conversations of Mexican elections, and Mexican elections it can be pretty nutty, to say the least. Oh, yeah. And mainly because of uh, the revolutionary, um, the, the the institutional revolutionary party. There we go. Thank you. I always flip it around because you know, yeah, the, Spanish and, and, and English have different word orders. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about uh, pre PRI. What the fuck's up with them? Why are they to me the culprits of? The turmoil of 1994. Well, the um, the PRI or, or the uh, you know the the pre, um, which, which as as a child I, I constantly laughed at that name um, for reasons my mother just did not understand. <laughs> but uh, the pre, like they're they're essentially like the kind of the kind of like authoritarian Democrats, um, like par excellence. Of, of Latin America, they were essentially the aftermath, the the party that came about after the Mexican Revolution, when they, you know, as the name implies, institutionalized the revolution. Basically, where the moderates uh, kind of took power, centralized all power amongst like a very small number of people, which is like the executive committee of the pre, and essentially ruled Mexico for like seventy years straight. Um, they didn't lose a single presidency. Um, it's theorized they lost one. Uh, uh, in 1968, um, where Guatemala Carnas, who actually used to be in the left wing of the PRI, um, kind of got the election stolen from him. Um, like they're they essentially are like kind of like democratic centralisty organization where 
Um, it's very top down. Um, what the officers say goes. Um, you don't question orders, um, and you basically win or you die. Um, very, very Game of Thrones like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the documentary kind of starts us off a little bit about 1988. So they talk about that election and that they probably lost, but they were stuffing ballot boxes. Um, and basically Carlos Salinas realizing, oh shit, we kind of have to change some things if we want this party to survive. It could possibly lead to some type of revolution or uprising if we don't reform. And enters in his right-hand man, a guy named Luis Donaldo Colasio. And, um, Apparently, the documentary kind of portrays him as kind of a boy scout, right? Yeah, it kind of does. Like he, like he does no wrong. He's this kind of Captain America figure, where he's just full of you know, you know, liberty, justice, and the Mexican way. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's from a small town, and his dad was a mayor of that small town, and he got into politics, and he worked his way up into the party structure um, to actually leading the party. And Carlos Salinas kind of helped guide him to be the successor to run for president, which in that day, if you were the successor to run for president in the PRI, you were pretty much going to become the president, right? Yeah, there there was... There was literally a ceremony called um, – in England, it's called the pointing, where the current sitting president points to a member of his cabinet and says, you're going to be the next president. You can't really say no. <laughs> and then you know, you, you quit. Um, you basically resign from the cabinet for six months before the election because that's like a constitutional rule. Um, and then you go run and do stuff while the sitting president basically gets the presidency ready for you. So then – Colosio gets picked, but there's some controversy with that, right? Yes. Uh, there was a lot of controversy within the party because he – because people thought like, oh, this we can easily control this guy. He's going to be like – he's an, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's one of our guys, you know? But it turns out like the moment he hit he, – the moment he hit the, the campaign trail – he started talking, you know, the, the usual fucking like hope, you know, uh, you know, change in hope narrative that is common amongst politicians. Um, very much like a, a Obama figure, um, a lot of rhetoric, but it wasn't. It was only until after he, uh, after Colosio, genuinely thought that that um, the PRI might set someone else up to run, um, that he basically just said, "Fuck it," like gloves off and just started shouting off about like the actual political corruption that was going on. Uh, and that's when he really started pissing people off. Like the people you should be pissing off. People who are running shit. Yeah. People who've had more people killed. <laughs> like for less shit. And in the documentary, I know they had like a couple other people that are like, oh, well, could have, could so-and-so rise to the occasion and take the spot of the presidency and all this other internal wrangling, and then, like, there were a lot of rivals, and people just fucking hated this dude. Yeah, it it was like, it was like the the 2016 
Democratic Party convention, but with a lot more violence. <laughs> yes. A lot more deaths. <laughs> Way more. And um, essentially, let's keep it real, Colosio had to go. So somebody shot him in the head and in the stomach in Tijuana at a rally. And um, it was all on video. And you watch this video, you're like, holy shit. This is, could have been like a really bad mob violence situation. Yeah, but like the thing is, it's like, like, like they they show you in in the documentary where it's yeah, where like the the guy shoots him. Like you you literally see the the video where like there's there's multiple people recording from multiple angles, and you see the guy pull out a fucking revolver and just like fucking straight to the fucking temple, just blows his brains out. Um. People still don't know where the second shot come, like came from. People still don't know. But um, the guy shoots him, and the crowd just fucking gets the guy, just starts beating the shit out of him. Um, and like he, like when he finally gets to the jail, he's fucking like half dead. Um, so, but, but this is, of course, this is where uh, the Mexican conspiracy theories, which are very, a lot more popular and, and kind of broad than in the United States, that's where they kind of come in. And people are saying that, like, oh, they switched uh, the guy that was um, captured um, at the rally who killed who killed Colosio is not the guy who's in the prison who they're showing us. He, he looks different. They like did whatever because um, it's you know it's a fun narrative. Uh, but then they show like, no, he has the same fucking birthmarks and everything. Um, and then it was, oh, he was paid by the PRI to murder him or whatever, but. There's a lot of evidence that shows that this guy was clearly like he had some shit going on, and he like wrote this whole weird like kind of manifesto about like purging Mexican society of, of like political corruption and shit. So it kind of gives a lot more credence to the fact that he may have just been some like random fucking dude mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who got a gun and killed people. I mean that's not that it's not like that hasn't happened before. Um, it's not always a conspiracy, um, but Mexican society even till today like still rejects that. I mean, I was watching it with my parents. Um, they were like, you know, doing other stuff like in, in the living room. Uh, but like, so it was kind of in the background for them. But like when Colosio came up and like, they were talking about like, Oh, who did it? They're, they're like, both of them have like conflicting conspiracy theories of like who was involved, who knew, who paid people, like all this other shit. Um, and if you ask, like, if you ask like a room of Mexicans who were around at the time, like you'll get a, you'll get a fucking like, a myriad of fucking answers. Yeah. That with like no agreement. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird fucking time. Cause I was down there in sep not September. It was in it was in the summer of um, nineteen ninety-four, you know, summer vacation, and Colosio just got killed. And I just remember everybody was like, well, this shit happens. <laughs> A lot. And then there was like a combination. It's like people were energized, but like apathetic at the same time. You know what I mean? It's like, it was weird. Like I never experienced that feeling before where people are are willing to go to the polls like hardcore or they talked about it. But when it came down to like voting for a particular candidate, they really didn't give a shit. Yeah. We were talking about this documentary. And um, 
overall, I think we agreed that it was a pretty well well done, visually really interesting, and they had a lot of fucking interviews. But yeah, they got a lot of big names. They got fucking Mike Subcomante Marcos for fuck's sake to talk about the Zapatistas for like a whole episode. Yeah, he disappeared. He should have been in more episodes, but that was cool. Yeah, like they. It's it's really bullshit. Yeah, it, that, that was probably my biggest gripe with this fucking with this with this documentary series, where it was like, oh, like oh, it basically the first episode ends with like, okay, you know, they're on the campaign trail. Fucking um, Colosio's like, you know, naming names. He's like, you know, they're all fuck. The PRI is fucking corrupt, like his own party. Um, and then all of a sudden, like the fucking Zapatistas attack, and like that's how the episode ends. And then the second episode is like all about the Zapatistas. Um, kind of how they started getting training, how they're like basically fucking done uh, with the Mexican government, um, and like basically their uprising, their capture of uh, San Cristobal, um, and then the eventual like negotiation with the government, um, and then they just don't really show up again, um, which is like fucked up. Like they don't even include like the part where the Mexican government um, reneges on the peace deal and reinvades Chiapas and like basically forces the the um, Zapatistas into, like, the hinterlands of Chiapas. Like, they just kind of ignore all that. Like, that that's that's just... Because it's not part of the narrative, right? Yeah. Yeah. What matters is the... Like, Zapatistas are set up as essentially, like, this expression of kind of animosity towards the, the Mexican government um, and capitalism in general um, that's been fucking them over for, like, fucking centuries. Um and then kind of to use as this kind of jumping off point for the, the peace negotiator who ends up like not doing anything. <laughs> like he tries and he fails. It's pretty funny. Um, and then they kind of, again, they're not talked about for the rest of the fucking series because they no longer matter. Exactly. Because it, it's about the election and because the, the series is really about – it's not about the turmoil of Mexico in 1994. It's about the election, the assassination, and then the aftermath. That's what it's about. Um, it's not about, you know, it's not really about the fucking chaos of 94. It's about, it's about Colosio, basically. Yeah, like the whole series is, is, is just all around him. It's a kind of a Colosio circle jerk. A little bit. Um, so, since you brought it up, the aftermath. Let's talk about the aftermath. How did this this incident, this assassination affect Mexican politics going forward? Well, the first one was like, you know, political assassinations weren't new in Mexico. Um, they're just kind of a fact of life, sadly, um, in developing countries. But it, it never, it was never that high up. It wasn't like the presidential candidate for the ruling party. That never fucking happened. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's why a lot of people kind of went into the conspiratorial like rabbit hole and try to like basically look like fucking Charlie with the whole Pepe Silvia fucking connections, you know, mm -hmm. uh, trying to look for something that wasn't there. Um, but you know, it, it just, it escalated things like political assassinations just haven't stopped since then. Um, like I remember when AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who won, um, I remember when he was running. A lot of people were like, yeah, no, he's fucking – like they're going to try to fucking kill him like all the time. <laughs> uh, but then like he kind of – a little stroke of genius was like, yeah, no, if anyone fucking – like I'm, I'm not going to have like Secret Service. I'm just going to like 
I'm gonna like commute to work on the fucking subway, <laughs> like a normal person. And if anyone tries to kill me, the people would literally rise up and like avenge me, <laughs> which is like holy shit. Uh, threatening revolution if if he ever die. That's that's a pretty interesting move. Um, but uh, like even even I'm still surprised that no one's like tried to fucking murder this dude. Uh, like I'm, I'm surprised he's even still alive. Yeah, me too. And my dad is really, he really admires him because he's not rolling with secret service, but at the same time, it's still bothered. Like there are people who really want to kill you. Yeah. But uh, like, but at the end of the day, like, I think he kind of, uh, uh, one thing that he definitely learned was in terms of not necessarily good governance, but, or like giving, or like really kind of going, pushing demands was, um, but in just in terms of like not dying, uh, was knowing who not to piss off. And one of the first things he did was basically promise he's not going to nationalize anything. Um, he's going to prevent the privatization of stuff, but he's not going to renationalize things. Um, so that kind of eased off his back a lot of the economic interests that want him dead because they know that like, oh, the government is just going to come and take and like basically like. Um, take over my industry or whatever that I that I have a, a, a monopoly on, yeah, like telecommunications or something. But like, it, but of course, that gives a compromise of okay. But like, now you're not nationalizing things that probably should, <laughs> and that's problematic. And that is problematic. The left's favorite word. It is. It really is. It should be. I'm gonna get a T-shirt. That's problematic. <laughs> um, but. So, obviously, there's ripple effects from this election that affected the last election. Um, it was kind of the last gasp of PRI as the sole arbiters of par- power, at least on a yeah. presidential level. Yes. After that, everybody fucking was like, even like PRI supporters, um, which actually like my, my family on my mom's side, they were like left wing of the PRI, then they moved over to um, the Democratic Front, like the, the Wattama Karnas group, um, mm-hmm. which then became the PRD, and then moved over to AMLO when, when the Morena came around. Um, like even the, the, the remaining PRI supporters in my, in my mom's family, um, when when they kill Colosio, uh, when they kill Colosio, like even they were like, yeah, no, I'm not voting for PRI ever again. Um, that's actually how Pan, the, the National Action Party, which is actually a Christian conservative party, which is even more right wing than the PRI. Yeah. Um, that's actually how they got to power. Like they were the opposition group of Mexico at the time. Uh, the PRD kind of always stayed the kind of the redheaded stepchild uh, in third place. It wasn't really until AMLO came around that like the left, you know, the you know, quote unquote left of Mexico finally came to power. All right. Well, oh, do you recommend this documentary for people or how do you feel yeah, about it? it if if you want a really good documentary, uh, not necessarily good, but like, if you want a really good documentary about the Colosio assassination, this is the one to go to. If you want like a comprehensive look at um, Mexican society um, in 1994 and all the pro- and all the problems it had, and really that focuses on those problems and not like the big big name figures, this probably isn't the way to go. Uh, but you know, I mean, the Zapatista episode was really fun because they got fucking Subcomante Marcos to do an interview, which is like, oh, that's nice. Um, you know, so that, that was interesting. But um, again, like you're, you should have certain expectations going in. 
Awesome. Well, thank you for going down this uh, walk down memory lane with me and talking about this documentary, 1994. You know, it's on your Netflix if you're into that kind of shit. Thanks. You know, it's pretty, it's been pretty well. I watched a movie. Oh, uh, shit. Well, which one? It was a, it's a PBS documentary called Boss, The Black Experience in Business. That sounds very, that, that very much sounds liberal. <laughs> it, it really is. It really is. Um, it's on the more progressive side of liberal because in order for you to talk about business in America and, and specifically the black experience, you kind of have to be specious of the business structure and white supremacists because they go hand in hand. And this, this movie does that. But um, it also it ignores a large part of the black experience in business, um, mainly cooperative economics. Um, but, you know, I like talking about cooperative economics, but let's, let's talk about this whole idea of black capitalism or rainbow capitalism. Yes, it is. It is a specific, uh, concept I have, uh, a lot of not friendly attitudes towards. Yeah. Cause it's all kind of a Ponzi scheme, if you will. And yes. so, so first, let's define rainbow capitalism. Um, so, you know, stop me if you don't. Stop me if I get it wrong. But like generally, uh, the way I view it is, rainbow capitalism is like a form of like woke um, capitalism, where like, oh, like racism is over. Um, all, all, you know, entrepreneurial or like capitalist avenues. Um, for minority, for, for any minority group, um, whether it's a political minority or a like demographic minority, I've basically been lifted, um, and like it, all that matters now, like it has become a true meritocracy, um, and now, and all that matters now is whether or not you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, I mean, there's that's like one strain of the whole rainbow capitalist ideology. Where okay. You can compete in the market, whether you're black, white, Puerto Rican, Asian, whatever. You can compete in the market and you'll find your way. And, you know, if you just work hard enough and um, maybe you won't, you can move out of the hood. Maybe you can even give back to your community if that's something you're into. Or maybe you could just blow your money on cocaine. But it's your money. It's your property. And um, you participate in the capitalist experiment, if you will. Yeah, it's it's essentially the absorption of minority groups, which has traditionally been part of this kind of reserve army of like hyper exploited labor um, into the capitalist class. Exactly. And this documentary is a nice foil to just see how rainbow capitalism or in this instance, more specifically, black capitalism works. 
Um, they quote a lot of Booker T. Washington, which um, if anybody who's a historian on, you know, African-American studies, you kind of know that Booker T. Washington was the Bill Cosby of his day. He was, you know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, serve white people because you're not quite ready to really fully participate, you know, within the electoral system. But you could be a really good tradesperson. You can have a, you know, a business maybe, and you could do well. Maybe you can buy shit. But right now the Negro is not ready to be a full citizen. He was that cat. Yeah. Yeah, it was, he was literally the one who um, basically created the Atlanta Compromise, which is like, yeah, it's it's basically this kind of agreement where basically, yeah, no, exactly what you said. Like black people kept in their place. They developed internally, economically, like they create their own cap, they create their own capitalist class. And then eventually after a while, um, the whites will just see them as equals. Exactly. Which never fucking works because – I mean, every time you had a business that directly competed with a white business and was owned by a black person and they were winning at capitalism, oh, where, what are, what's with all these white people? Like, throwing me in jail. And then they break me out of jail. And oh, now I'm hanging from a fucking tree. You know, there were always white pogroms against black people who were uppity and were successful. Um... The Tulsa race riots, which they talk about in the black experience of business, is where essentially you had a pretty wealthy, well-to-do black bourgeois class. And, you know, they're doing capitalist things, but, you know, blacker. And because of resentment, always because it's sparked by some black guy whistling at a white chick, they decide to fucking burn the whole town down, rape pillage the whole shebang bang and um this is a legacy in history of you know black capitalism and rainbow capitalism that the historians are now willing to talk about but it's not because this is a side product product and white supremacy is just a thing to keep black people in place it's also a part of this capitalist system in the U.S., it's a part of the system, not separate. It's not an outside agent. It's inherent to our system. Yeah, I mean, like, these these businesses still operated within the capitalist market, the capitalist mindset. They, you know, these black business owners had employees who they who, whose surplus value they expropriated, um, like, for, you know, again, they, they were, they're capitalists. The only thing, the only thing that was different um, was the race. And that was the thing, because like, because there really is a split within kind of the ruling class over whether to prioritize class or to prioritize race. Um, and during this time, um, and before kind of rainbow capitalism kind of really kind of took over uh, the capitalist class for the most for the most part, um, it like race like always trumped class. Um, so. Uh, it, it took a lot of organizing and working to kind of make it go the other way. Um, and there would be – again, yeah, no, there would be race riots it, it, targeted at the black bourgeoisie, uh, but also the black workers also. Exactly. 
Exactly. And here's something I thought was really interesting about this documentary as a reflection of black capitalism. And then we'll get into, you know, expand it outwards, uh, I guess, eventually. But think about where these former slaves get, got the capita to start these businesses. It wasn't fucking sharecropping because no one got paid out of that. That was just another way of form of slavery. So where did these people get the money? Well, a lot of it was <clears throat> creating what they called benevolent societies, or otherwise mutual aid societies. Um, a lot of folks created cooperatives. Um, there's one example actually in this documentary where they talk about a specific cooperative in Memphis called the People's Grocery. And um, it was a black ran co-op. And um, because it was doing better than the white grocery store, well, the community, the white community, had a problem with this and, you know, did some lynching. But the fact that this black capitalism came from capital that was created collectively from the community. It's ironic and shitty at the same time. And um, I feel like this documentary, time and time and time again, did not address this issue. It didn't address this issue that, you know, they collectively pooled their money together and then some people continued on doing cooperative economics, but then you had the assholes that decided to, you know, go the capitalist route and exploit their own community. And that leads you to date Jay-Z. Jay-Z was in the fucking documentary. Holy shit. Yeah. And Jay-Z is, to me, probably the worst example of that kind of thinking, that form of thinking currently. Can we can we shit on Jay Z? Is that okay? Yes, go go go, go off. <laughs> okay. So Jay Z, his own myth, his mythology is that he came from the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn. He sold drugs. He put that money towards marketing his his CDs at the time. He, that was successful. He got a label deal, like a vanity label deal. And was able to create Rockefeller Records. And then he just parlayed all that money into like Rockaware and all this shit. And now he owns part of the Brooklyn Nets. His rags to riches story and always kind of sells it in his music and glorifies it as if, this is what I did. Don't you want to be like me? Now that he's older, he's... um. He's learned the capitalist game to like, okay, this is how I can exploit philanthropy. Where it's not really philanthropy, it's just another business hustle for him. Where he gains, but he looks good. He looks like he's a, a good person. Because he put some venture capital into, you know, minority-owned uh, capitalist tech firms. But 
If it does well, he gets fucking paid. It's not like he's doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He's exploiting these other companies. He's just by but just giving them access to capital. And yet he's this guy now, he has this platform and he makes songs that I feel like Bill Cosby would have made in his seventies. Where, oh yeah, this is how my money makes more money for me. Aren't you stupid that you haven't figured this out? And I really want to kick him in the balls. He's had his children, so I'm just going to straight square kick him in the balls. <laughs> That's my Jay-Z rant. Thank you for letting me do that. <laughs> no, but like uh, this whole, like it, it seems from, like in, in the movie, like there's very much a, an idea that, oh, like capitalism is, you know, um, in its purest form, without all that dirty white nationalism that literally helped to birth the fucking concept of capitalism. Um, like, literally, like, like some real, like, Sean Locke, like, oh, these indigenous people aren't um, using the land properly, so we have to, so it's, if anything, it's our duty to go in there and, and kick them out and use them properly because of land rights and property rights and all this other bullshit um, that, was steps, that was steeped in white supremacy. Um, yeah, no, capitalism in its purest form is fine. It's just we need to get rid of the white supremacy. We need to get rid of um, unfair gov- uh, unfair government um, regulations that target black and brown uh, businesses and all the other stuff. Uh, we need to support our communities um, in terms of exploiting them. Um, well, having black people exploit black communities or having you know brown people support uh, exploit black brown communities. Um, like as if that will somehow solve the problem of poverty or like any number of issues that kind of stem from capitalism. When it's like, as we've seen in like some of the real poor white communities, like yeah, no, they they got white privilege. Like that's the real thing. Um, like they don't have necessarily racist um, policies hidden towards them because they're not black or brown. They're they're not people of color. They're white, um, but they are still immensely poor they're still despised uh, for being poor um they're still fucking hated by the government um and they still like you know live in abhorrent conditions like that's that itself is not going to solve the problem like actually it's not going to solve the problem it's just going to alleviate it a little bit um and only really solve it for a far very small handful of people who benefit from it exactly so Rainbow capitalism, however you shake it, is just capitalism, but with a black face. Or, I guess, yellow face, like they used to do in the 50s. Or brown face, whatever. It's a, it's a hustle to get people to perpetuate the system. Because once, once these groups realize, wow, this isn't really helping us. It's not meeting the needs of our community. Why are we buying into this? Well, shit, the whole social order could fall apart. That's the last thing the regular capitalists, white capitalists, really want. <coughs> and um, so how do, you, how do you get people to buy in to your vision how do you get them to buy into your vision at the expense of their own benefit? Well, hey, we've excluded you historically from this process because of the color of your skin. 
But you know what? We admit that. But the process is still good. The process of you pulling, raising capital, however you get it, because we don't care, starting a business and exploiting your workers and accumulating wealth, you can do this and have your money make more money for you. Wow. Isn't this great? Maybe one day you'll own some shit. you own your house. You can send your kids to a good school. Look how your life is so much better. Being out in the suburbs with clean air, clean white people. You know, don't you want that? Byron, don't you want that? <laughs> and No, but it, it really is like in cities because um, it, it, it literally gets it, – it, it, it is it is incredibly tempting to like want to improve your condition, but the kind of the way of going about it, you're kind of damning everyone else you leave behind. Cause, cause, because like you need someone to exploit, right? Yeah. Like someone has to get the short end of the stick of capitalism, um, and because like yours is usually being operated within black and brown communities, they're the ones who are getting it. Like it, you just end up perpetuating black and brown poverty because like, oh no, like. Yeah, you give you gave them jobs, but those jobs aren't living wages, and they are basically working and barely surviving. Um, so at that point, like, how the fuck are you any different from a white capitalist at that point? Not at all. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter who's wearing the boot that stamps on the human face forever. The, the goal should be to remove the boot. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this documentary tried to address that. Saying, oh, well, black entrepreneurs, when they do their black entrepreneurial thing, they are part of the community. They funded the civil rights movement. And to a certain extent, yes, they did draw cut a few checks. Great. Yeah, but those checks dried up the moment Martin Luther King started talking about capitalism. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like that, that, that support only goes so far until it, it is no longer in their interest to do so. And, and what is in their interest, like, is kind of in contrary to the, what the vast majority of people of color, of, of the interest of people of color. Exactly. Because now, regardless of their skin color, their class and their, their class politics is in cahoots with the white capitalists. More for me, less for everybody else. Or more so, more for me. And everybody else, fuck them. Because I deserve this. For whatever fucking reason. But, you know, if I were to rank this documentary, Boss, The Black Experience in Business, from a editing artistic point, okay, it's a B plus. They make a really great use of the boss, the James Brown song, which is fucking awesome. However, the history and the actual content of the documentary, because of ignoring cooperative economics in the history of black business, and kind of cherry-picking a lot of the quotes from W.E.B. Du Bois' To kind of suit the narrative that they made, it that, drops to like yeah. C. 
yeah, and like, and like, and that's like the really insidious part that fucking is like annoying when that happens. Is like when when people who are in favor of the capitalist ideology, whether it's a more you know of capitalism with a friendlier face or, or whatever, like use the like very specific quotes from like socialists like the boys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who was like an ardent supporter of the Russian revolution and was like, yeah, no, like black castle capitalism is not the best idea. Um, he, he's now being used to support of black capitalism of like, like what the, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> exactly. And I don't know what you would call it if it's red washing, where you just fucking remove, you know, all the radicalism of these wonderful people. But I'm fucking sick and tired of it, and I'm sick and tired of it in the black experience. Because a lot of this history is being told and rewritten by black capitalists. Uh, I saw this in the African American uh, History Museum, the one in in Washington, D.C., the new fangled one. And, yeah, that's what Oprah's money's doing for you folks. She's rewriting history. Because somehow, W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, Paul Robeson became alleged communists, or alleged communist sympathists, as opposed to, oh yeah, socialists and fucking communists. So, that's kind of my last thoughts about the documentary, go check it out if you want to blow, you know, two hours of your time. But at the end of the day, it's still capitalist propaganda. Motherfucker. <laughs> Tell yourself. Wow, folks, another show has come and gone. Pretty awesome. I just want to remind everybody to subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts. Um, my name is Brandon Peyton Carrillo. If you're a nerd and you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at B Peyton Carrillo. And, uh, you know, I look forward to talking to you folks next time. Adios. Color.